Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 119, The Cherokee War. In our last episode, we caught up on events around the world in the Seven Years' War, looking at the British victory in India and the continued struggles of Prussia in Europe. We then turned to the major event of October 1760, the death of King George II and the ascension of King George III. We introduced Lord Bute into the narrative. Those of you who've read ahead will know the important role he's going to have in the lead-up to the American Revolution, but before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we need to go back to North America to check in with Amherst and cover what I've been teasing for the past few episodes, the Cherokee War. You might not think it, given how I've focused on the northern colonies in our narrative over the past 20 years or so, but the largest scale interaction the British had with a Native American tribe was with the Cherokees. At this point in time, they were about 10,000 strong, and lived in three major clusters of villages around the eastern borders of Tennessee. These were the Overhills, the Lower Towns, and the Middle Towns. They primarily acted as trade partners with the British, particularly the colony of South Carolina, but also acted as slave capturers. Their alliance with the British had lasted several decades, and we have mentioned them in the narrative previously as several hundred offered to fight for the British in the early years of the Seven Years' War during the Forbes campaign. But that had been a train wreck. They'd been insulted by Forbes, and during the summer of 1758, they returned home with weapons. This spooked the British farmers of the backcountry who did not distinguish between Indian ally and Indian enemy. Militias attacked the Cherokees, with one group killing several overhill chiefs and handing their scalps in in Virginia for a reward. This soured relations, but when the Cherokee warriors made their way back home, they found that the whites had taken advantage of the situation to poach on Indian land, threatening their food supply. The older chiefs, who had established peaceful relations all those years ago, urged peace, but there was a great division amongst the Cherokees on how to act. Some met with the British governor, William Henry Littleton, in Charleston, while Overhill and Lower Town raiding parties sought revenge. It seemed as though peace might be achieved. Trade was crucial to the Cherokees. The leading figure among those who wanted reconciliation, Atacolacola, pushed for concessions from the Carolina government. Governor Littleton negotiated with Atacolacola throughout the spring of 1759, but he refused to offer a gift. When news of the Overhill and Lower Town raids reached Charleston, Littleton issued a embargo on the gunpowder trade. The Cherokees needed gunpowder for their hunting, so sent a new delegation of the most moderate chiefs to Charleston, 
but Littleton took the emissaries prisoner. With the moderate chiefs imprisoned, the militant chiefs were able to take control of the situation. Littleton demanded that the Indian murderers be given to the British, but in Cherokee eyes, the raiders had acted legitimately. But there was nothing any Cherokee leader could do to rein them in. The situation worsened in early 1760, as the Cherokee attacked the British forts that acted as trading posts, and the British responded by killing the hostage chiefs. By February, Littleton realised that he had lost control of the situation, and with only some militiamen, he was unable to restore order. He requested emergency funds from the Assembly, and requested help from Francis Falquier, who had succeeded Dinwiddie as Governor of Virginia, and to Amherst, who was at this time closing in on Montreal. While this was happening, smallpox broke out in Charleston, and rumours whirled around that there was a potential slave uprising. At this point, Littleton found out that he had been made Governor of Jamaica, and he left Carolina in March 1760. The situation was a powder keg, but it was not ready to explode. Not yet. The Cherokee were aware of the power of the British, and that they were quite isolated. The Creek, a tribal confederation who lived further south of the Cherokee in southern Tennessee, Alabama, western Georgia, and northern Florida, had been pushing for war, but now held back, hoping to take advantage of a conflict between the British and their neighbours to the north. The French settlement of Fort Toulouse, which sat on the eastern edge of the Louisiana colony, near the current site of Wetcompa, Alabama, offered encouragement to the Cherokee, but nothing more. It's quite possible that the war could have been ended at this point, before it escalated, but 1,300 regulars arrived under the control of Colonel Archibald Montgomery in April, and then several hundred mounted Carolina Rangers in May. In June, Montgomery moved against lower towns and burned five villages. The Cherokee would not negotiate. Montgomery next moved against middle towns, 60 miles away. It was a very rough country, and by July, they'd been pushed back to lower towns by Cherokee resistance. Within a few days, he was back in Charleston, and by August, having declared victory and left, Montgomery was on his way to New York. He had done little but enrage the war party. The Cherokees moved against Fort Loudoun, which finally surrendered in the beginning of August, which was then followed by a massacre. This was followed by a six-month truce, while other parties played for time. The winter of 1761 was a brutal one. The Cherokee remained in good spirits after capturing Fort Loudoun and pushing back Montgomery, but there was a tremendous deal of snow. The destruction of lower towns reduced the harvest, and disease continued to spread. Then there was the matter of a new opponent. Colonel James Grant served under Forbes and Bouquet, and was the second commander under Montgomery. 
He was experienced, commanded regiments from the north, a group of Mohawk and Stockbridge scouts, as well as a force raised by South Carolina that included provincials, rangers, and Catawba and Chickasaw warriors. Supply issues caused by the hard winter meant that Grant was unable to get his operation underway until the spring. He had about 2,800 men, and was infinitely more prepared than Montgomery had been the previous year. He met a Cherokee force of near a thousand, around the site of the previous year's battles. The battle was not decisive, but it used up almost all of the Cherokee ammunition. Grant was free to continue his campaign largely unopposed, and he proceeded to devastate Middletowns. It's estimated that 60% of the Cherokee population were refugees in the Overhill settlements, causing massive food shortages and destroying what was left of their economy. They were suffering a smallpox epidemic, the British allied tribes were raiding them, and the Creeks, who were largely behind the push for war in the first place, used the situation to get a good trade deal out of the British. Then there was the matter of Virginia. Virginia had been using its resources to build a road network further into the backcountry, and it could now quite easily launch a raid against the Overhill population on a scale Grant hadn't even been able to contemplate. In short, the Cherokee were doomed. They sued for peace. Negotiations took place over August, where Atacolacolla represented the Cherokees, and he was able to achieve remarkably good terms. The Cherokees returned white prisoners, slaves, and captured livestock. The frontier was moved westwards, with the lower towns losing half of their hunting grounds. They did not need to return the braves who killed the settlers back in 1759. A few months later, the border was moved 14 miles eastward, putting the situation very close to how it was before the war started. There were a few notable differences, though. For instance, the trade monopoly of Carolina was broken as Virginia came into serious contact with the Overhills. The old Southern Indian intendant died in late 1761, and he was replaced by John Stewart, a friend of Atacolacolla, who would make sure that the situation with the Cherokee never got this far again. In terms of drawing lessons from the conflict, it's actually rather difficult. The Cherokees suffered greatly, but saw their strategic position improve. European coercion had forced and sparked aggressive responses from the Indians. But the Europeans found that if they exerted concentrated efforts and blocked the supply of European goods, they could outpower the Indians, even in the backcountry. The Indians notably did not cooperate, and were more inclined to work with the British to get an advantage over another tribe. Amherst himself concluded that trade regulation 
was the answer, which shrunk trade in the West and caused a great deal of damage to the Indian tribes. He cut off their access to alcohol, which might have been good for the Indians, but they did not appreciate it, and saw their ability to hunt limited. It, predictably, set up problems down the road. Though, it must be said, Indian matters were not Amherst's main concern in 1761. Most of his attention was demanded trying to organise a government for Canada and encouraging a new settlement by the Ohio Valley. Amherst saw this as the logical way to solve supply problems, but to the Indians of the Ohio, it looked like colonisation. The British had promised that the early settlements would be trading posts only, yet the military remained, and civil government was growing around them. However, we'll cover all of that in the future when we get to Pontiac's War. We're going to end the episode here for today, and next time we're going to head back to Europe as the Seven Years' War finally nears a close. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.